You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop. Welcome to the library and to the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands in which we meet, the Gomeregal people, and pay our respects to their spirits and ancestors, past, present, and emerging. So, my name's Amanda Hudson, and I am Council's Community Development Librarian, and today I have the pleasure of introducing Ruth Wilson to talk about her new book, The Jane Austen Remedy. Ruth Wilson grew up in Griffith in central western New South Wales and has lived for most of her life, most of her adult life in Sydney. Uh, she started her career as a teacher and she taught at the American International School in Israel where she lived for five years. And on her return to Australia, she became active in the Jewish community. She designed an educational program for the Jewish anti-discrimination organisation Courage to Care and served on the board of various Jewish community organisations. In 2021, at the age of 88, Ruth graduated from the University of Sydney with a PhD entitled Milestones in a Reading Life, Jane Austen and Lessons in Reading, Learning and Imagination, which advocates for a new approach to reading literary fiction at school. It was from this thesis came her first book, The Jane Austen Remedy, which has been described as a life-affirming memoir of love, self-acceptance, and the curative power of reading. Please give a warm welcome to Ruth Wilson. Does that sound all right? You can hear that, right. I shall put my notes here. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for coming out on this very... Is that right? On this very uninviting day. So I hope that you'll find what I have to say a little more inviting than the weather. As I was preparing for today's talk, I found myself wishing that the dedicated readers who have braved the inclement weather, that's you, on this dull day, had been present at the launch of the Jane Austen Remedy on a clear evening earlier this week. There it is, very pretty cover. <laughs> so it would be nice for me to relive, relive the excitement of publishing a memoir that reached its peak on that wonderful night, Tuesday of this week. And with your indulgence, I shall try to recreate the mood of that evening by telling you something about the event. It is not just about the excitement either. It is also part of the story of what this book is about. The launch itself was held in a beautiful modern extension to the 1880s building that houses the Women's College on the University of Sydney campus. Some personal history explains why the choice of that particular venue is a new strand in the continuing story of my life. My memoir itself started, as Amanda has mentioned, as a doctoral thesis about reading and the imagination 
with special reference to Jane Austen's novels. I had two supervisors. Rebecca, my primary supervisor, guided me through the research and writing process. Olivia was my auxiliary supervisor. She is a Jane Austen expert, and she read and commented on my analyses of three Austen novels that tested my advocacy of a more personal and expressive approach to reading literary fiction at school. Now, however, Olivia has changed the direction of her professional life, and she is the vice principal of the Women's College. When she received a copy of the book with its beautiful cover, which I have just shown off to you, she was moved to offer the equally graceful Sybil Centre, a modern extension to the original Victorian building as the venue for the launch. I accepted that offer with alacrity. I had two reasons. First, the venue is both gracious and spacious, and the college generous, generously undertook to organise the event down to the very last detail. Second, and there is an unexpected Jane Austen trademark irony here, I was reminded by the offer that I had been unsuccessful in my application to become a resident of the college when I enrolled at the University of Sydney as a new undergraduate in 1949. <laughs> the college, I was told by the then principal, already had its quota of Jewish students, three in total. One, she told me, even had the same surname as me. That was very little consolation. The principal was kind and courteous, but she said she was obliged to reject my application, although she acknowledged my really glowing references from a Presbyterian minister and a Methodist minister, <laughs> both of whom had regularly invited me to and thanked me for reciting passages from Shakespeare and other well-known elocution pieces if there's anyone here of my generation, you will know what they were, at their annual concerts in my hometown of Griffith. It struck me, therefore, that the launch of a book of memories in the college that had not accepted me as a resident 72 years previously was both a sign of a more enlightened time for which I am sure we are all grateful, but it is also proof that the sort of irony that Jane Austen displays so masterfully in her novels can happen in real life too. The book, The Jane Austen Remedy, was launched by a member of my book club. She is an eminent sociologist, but in my opinion, more importantly, she is an ideal reader. She captured at the launch accurately what I was trying to do in the book, and because she read the book in just the way that I hoped it would be read, I am going to prolong the mood of the launch by adapting, with her permission, some thoughts from the address she delivered. Bettina, that's her name, described the book as a searingly honest memoir of a long creative and productive life within my family, in particular with my friends, 
over a lifetime. My communities, my university student life, and my career. She mentioned too my early life with my parents and brother in the New South Wales regional town of Griffith. My mostly happy childhood years as an avid reader, movie lover, dedicated school student, and she picked up on my longing for the close intimacy of female friendship. Bettina went on to describe as totally absorbing my time as a student of English literature and education at Sydney University in a very historical post-war moment. She also made reference to the fact that I had been a leading actor in the two student theatre companies and their production. And she follows my continuing careers in English literature education and intergenerational oral history. The stresses and ambivalences of life as a wife and mother in the 60s and the 70s. And from the age of 60, a decade sojourn alone in a yellow house called Lantern Hill in the Southern Highlands. Here I attempted to understand and recover from a crisis of confidence that left me feeling, as Bettina described it, abandoned by happiness. And finally, the period in which I returned to the city, engaged with academic life, and found renewed happiness and peace in my 80s, which are now coming to an end. Bettina's launch address was everything I could have hoped for, as was the conclusion of the program when the internationally acclaimed flautist Jane Rutter played a flute version of an Irish ballad called Robin Adair. Robin Adair is the only named piece of music in any of the novels and a clue to the state of mind of Jane Fairfax, the alternative heroine of the novel Emma. I hope that the narrative of my reading life might have relevance for you as avid readers of literary fiction, possibly both canonical and contemporary. And you also need to know that although the memoir is a development from a PhD thesis, you need not, well, I hope you need not fear that you will be subjected to theories and abstractions. I have made every effort to integrate the research scholarship into the narrative in a way which is seamless, not to disrupt the two strands that wind their way through the Jane Austen remedy, my life and the reading of Jane Austen's novels. In the remaining time, I would like to give you a few glimpses into the book itself, starting with my first experience of reading Pride and Prejudice, one that propelled me into Jane Austen's fictional universe. So, it's quite close to the beginning. Right. This comes in the first chapter, which is called All About Austen, and I'm taking all the excerpts today from this chapter. The spell was cast the day I opened Austen's most radiant novel. Sixty years later, I thought of it as book magic, as I experienced the warmth of a glowing fire in my southern highlands home and remembered my Austen initiation on a contrastingly hot day in summer. 
Then I was at school, reading the book because it had been recommended by an English teacher whom I admired and respected. This is often the way, as the writer Rebecca Mead tells readers in The Road to Middlebarch, a book that celebrates her life with George Eliot. A retired English teacher with whom Mead read as a student was a crucial influence on her life. Together they prepared for her entrance examination. They analyzed the metaphysical poets and dissected Shakespeare's characters. Inspired by the novel Middlemarch, Mead determined to change her life. Jane Austen's novels performed that service for me. They changed my life because they changed what I wanted to read and the way I connected with characters and ideas in fiction. More significantly than any of the other many novels that I have read and loved, Austen's novels set the gold standard for the books I would choose to read from then on. They were what the Latin poet Horace called dolce et utile, sweet and useful. They shaped the course of my future. Because of them, I became a lover of language, a teacher of literature, a parent reader, and in a broader sense, an educator. My inner life has been nourished, illuminated, and comforted by the empathetic voices, the complex characters, and the challenging ideas in Austen's novels. And they have changed, as I have done, over a lifetime. It really did not matter so much I discovered through reading those novels whether my parents fulfilled every need that I craved. What they lacked was often found in the pages of a book. A character in Michael Cunningham's novel, The Hours, wonders what book to give to a sick friend. You want to give him the book of his own life, the book that will locate him, parent him, arm him for the changes. If being parented means, mean, means being encouraged to explore and reflect on your own life and relationships, then Austen's fiction has helped me to feel that I was parented very well indeed. The second excerpt illustrates how fiction and life blend in the way I read from the same chapter. The Lyceum Theatre, unlike the Rio, now I'm speaking about two theatres in the town Griffith where I grew up, was dedicated to the silver screen. The Lyceum was the elite picture show. As far as I remember, it welcomed no indigenous patrons. My film addictive parents patronised it at least twice a week, as frequently, in fact, as the programme changed. The Art Deco touches were more elaborate than in the Rio. Inside both the foyer and the theatre where we sat on upholstered seats, dimly lit glass bowls were held aloft by slender female figures. It was here that my mother, my father and I sat through two viewings of the film Pride and Prejudice, starring Greer Garson and Laurence Olivier in a single week. That was during the year that I turned 15. I don't think my parents would have guessed my thoughts as we sat together in absorbed silence. Even as I followed the story, 
I was considering whether my mother, with her nervous headaches, wasn't just a little like Mrs. Bennet. And my father, well, one could only wonder at how a fictional character with a tendency to poke fun at those less quick-witted than himself could be so, so familiar. I doubt that watching the film I detected the larger ironies with which the heroine must re wrestle. These would become apparent only later when I read the novel. For the time being, Mrs. Bennet's abundance of wit and the humorous spirit with which the family greeted Mrs. Bennet's fluttering nerves did little to disrupt what were, in my mind, the domestic delights of life at Longburn. When it came to the daughters, who were so much closer to my own age, I was especially curious. Now I wondered how my parents perceived me in relation to the Bennet girls. If they imagined me as any of the five daughters, I would have liked it to be lovely Lizzie or perhaps gentle Jane, although there was little reason to associate with me, me with either. But I really hoped it was not Mary. She, like me, had a bookish bent. I could see that both Elizabeth and Jane shone in comparison with the shallow and silly younger sisters. I thought they were amusing, but I was unsure about Mary. Although her hair was pulled back into a tight bun and she wore glasses with round wire frames to give her, I suppose, a studious and plain look, she did not evoke my scorn. Perhaps I identified with someone who was less popular and pretty than her peers, but still I thought anyone would prefer the company of Elizabeth or Jane. The third excerpt is a very brief passage which demonstrates the way in which Rereading at different stages of life can lead to different reflections. As I reread the novel By the Fire in My Yellow Cottage, I was surprised to be jolted from past reading recollections to present circumstances. I was getting to know the community in which I was now living mainly through the friends of the library and the Jane Austen Society, but through neighbours and their friends as well. How many women had I met with Austen-like designs in my new habitat, I asked myself. Well, two at least among a small number of new acquaintances. A divorced lady who rented a house in my street had set her heart on finding an unattached male somewhere among the bridge players at the local <laughs> golf club. She sought male partners with an Austenian determination. And I had met a widowed lady who joined the gardening club and discovered her delight, a male gardener whose wife did not share his horticultural enthusiasm. That widow set her gardening hat at him as readily as any Austen character might do. I turn to the scene in which Charlotte Lucas waylays Mr. Collins in the lane, away from Bennett eyes, and read it to myself aloud. Meryton and Regency in time seemed quite, quite near, even in the Southern Highlands. And the final passage concludes this chapter. It's about why I love reading, and also why I love reading Jane Austen's novels, more than any others.
When I discovered the possibilities of language, as Jane Austen used it, both on the page and in my ears, a new door to fiction opened. Just as suddenly, another closed. Gone were the days when I waited impatiently to speed read my way through the short stories included among gossip about socialites and film stars that my mother looked forward to reading in the magazines tossed over the fence and onto our front lawn every week. I didn't have the vocabulary to name cliches and stereotypes, but I knew that something about the writing and the characters was, in Hamlet's words, stale, flat and unprofitable. My taste for them dissolved overnight. Gone, too, were the days when I derived quite so much pleasure from the heroines of my younger reading days. Until then, I had cried many times when tomboy, tomboy Judy, punished so unfairly by her stern father, died in Ethel Turner's novel, Seven Little Australians. I had rejoiced often when my favorite L.M. Montgomery heroine, Jane, who spent holidays with her estranged father at Lantern Hill, rebelled against the dictates of a controlling grandmother. I could not get enough of the wind that tossed hair transformed from a curly dark mop to a straight blonde mane as I rode my horse across the paddocks of Billabong Station in my imagination with Nora, a long-legged athletic Australian ideal of girlhood created by Mary Grant Bruce. After meeting the Bennett family, the girls I had known so well dwindled a little. Now they were like friends whom I still loved and valued, whose place in my memory was non-negotiable and enduring, but whose company I had outgrown. I remembered them fondly, but rarely wished to visit them again. Perhaps it is just that I was becoming a grown-up reader. Although I didn't know it, yet know it, I was falling under the spell of social satire, disguised as comedy, in particular, particular as comedy of manners. Meeting a girl like Elizabeth Bennet in fiction, I was forming an ideal of femininity that the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald regretted a century later for its influence on his own wife. It occurs to me that Fitzgerald's female ideal, the flappers of his wife's elders' generation, might have had some of Elizabeth Bennet's vivacity and independent spirit, but turned out to be more fun to court than to marry. One of the quotable quotes that flowed from Virginia Woolf's pen is her assessment of George Eliot's Middlemarch, the magnificent book which, with all its imperfections, is one of the few English novels written for grown-up people. Perhaps readers pay a price for growing up, taking my cue from Wolfe and drawing on my own experience as a reader. I think of Jane Austen as a writer whose novels never stop helping readers to grow up. Thank you. Raise your hand and I'll bring the microphone over. 
Well, this is a silly question, but never mind. <laughs> never what mind. You, how do you think the, the characters trans, oh, transformed in, into the films that they made of them or the, the series? You'd see them on yes. telly. They Look, were wonderful, I thought. I, I believe that the films and the series all have their place in contemporary popular culture. They obviously introduce a lot of people to the novels in exactly the way that I was introduced by Greer Garson and Laurence Olivier in 1947 or whatever it was. So I think they really can be very good introductions, particularly if you see one or two of the same film and you compare the different interpretations. They can open your mind to different ways. The important thing, I think, to understand is that the novels, as you read them, play with your imagination in your head on screen, they are really the imaginations of directors, of actors, of other people. But if you really want to meet those people in person, then I think that eventually reading them in the novels is the best way. And the, the thing is, does there is that famous opening sentence to Pride and Prejudice about universal truth. And it is very interesting to think about the ways in which Austen plays with the ideas of what truth is. The ideas of truth, and especially universal truth, were subject of great public interest in the educational, educated circles in which she moved. And I think that what her novels did for really the very first time was show you a truthfulness to, a truthfulness to life, which is not about telling you any truth, but showing you life as it really is. It was a very. It is. It has been presented in so many different ways, uh, starting with her own family's projection of her as a woman who was appropriate and suitable for her times. So they actually presented her as a very domesticated spirit, who really her life was dedicated to looking after her nieces and nephews. She didn't marry, uh, making her brothers shirts looking after her sisters-in-law when they were in childbirth. A couple of them had 10, 11, 12 children. A couple of them died and the brothers quickly married again and had a few more children. But what she observed about life was so different. It was Yes, it was a domestic life, but her observations were worldly and sophisticated and incredibly well expressed. In my, that's how I read her. Thanks for that. It's a nice question. Um, just referring to that question, um, I had the pleasure of teaching Emma and Clueless in conjunction, and I found that the, the kids who got it, they, they'd alerted me to Clueless when it first came out, and now I love Clueless. <laughs> but anyway, what I was going to ask you was, do you think there's a, a significant differentiation between the way male youth read Austen and females? That is really a, such an interesting question. I have to answer it historically in a way, but first let me tell you, I hate Clueless. I have tried to watch it so many times and it fits in with my theory of what reading is. We engage in different ways and some of us, th there has to be a, a hook that we get onto and I can't get onto it. I just dislike them all. I dislike the news. I dislike the music, I, so 
I have a very dear friend who was a professor of English pedagogy and she was outraged when it was put on the curriculum, Emma was put on with Clueless. And she wrote an article which was published, and I've been trying to get it in the meantime, and I can't. And her big headline was, Emma is not clueless. And she was absolutely determined. So, but I don't think it matters. You know, if some kids connect through clueless, like, you know, there are, there's so much fanfic now about the different characters before the novels started, after the novels. My poor bookish Mary Bennett has been revisited by, I think, at least four novelists who've written about Mary Bennett when she grew up. And she undid her bun and she threw off her glasses and she became quite a wild and a very attractive girl, and I really like that. The other question, yes, from the very beginning, Jane Austen's novels really attracted male readers. I mean, the first person who wrote with some understanding of what she was doing, not complete understanding, but some understanding, was Walter Scott. Uh, and he was the one who saw that the fidelity to life that she was presenting was something so new in the history of the, of the novel that it needed, to be, it needed to be understood. And that although it was on a small domestic scale, it was as valid as readable. And of course, we know who reads Walter Scott now, but. You know, a lot of people are still reading Jane Austen. Later on in the 19th century, you have a whole series of men of letters who literally fell in love with either Jane Austen or with her characters. And so you have, I think the Prime Minister Disraeli said, I have, I have, read, uh, I have read Pride and Prejudice 17 times or 18 times. And I think it was Robert Louis Stevenson said, every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I get down on bended knee and propose to Elizabeth Bennet. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a whole... Virginia Woolf wrote, living here in Bloomsbury, within, like, a radius of where she was living, there are at least 25 elderly men who regard any criticism of Jane Austen as a sin against a saint. And that's, that's how they looked in more recent years. There are men scholars, there are quite a few male scholars of Jane Austen, and really she's gone into scholarship in terms of where she's looked at from the perspectives of feminism and from imperialism and prejudice and classism. But I really think in the majority, the, the women are the main readers. And I thought a very interesting thing happened um, with the film version with Jennifer Eel and Colin Firth and the shirt and the wet nipples. And, and that really was that instead of men falling in love with Austen's heroes, women's, uh, hero, heroines, women started to fall in love with the heroes. By and large, I, look, I don't know how many boys at school would want to read Jane Austen, but I think that those who do and get it that's what you're saying. You've got to get it. If you don't get it, forget it. You know, it doesn't matter. There's somebody else. You know, read, um, read uh, Faulkner or read someone else. But if you, you know, if you get Jane Austen, she has such a lot to give you. Thank you for your talk. It's been really enjoyable. Can I just say, um, obviously, you read as an older woman. You read differently to when you were younger. Um, do you still hold Pride and Prejudice as being your favourite?
favourite? I mean, that's how it sounds. Or which one has now it's, changed from when you <laughs> no, were... No, it, it started with Jane with Pride and Prejudice, but I have to say my favourite is which, if, not even whichever I'm reading, whichever one I'm thinking of. As I'm talking about Emma, she becomes my favourite because there is this incredible transformation from that really irritating girl into a woman, a young woman who has some sort of self-knowledge. I've always loved Fanny Price, but I understand it is a more difficult... Uh, it's a more difficult... And it, it demands more moral perception or more of a, an ethical focus, perhaps, than the, although the, I think she is a profoundly moral writer, Jane Osmond. So all I can say is whichever one I'm thinking of, but certainly the way I've looked, and that's what my book traces, the ways in which my understanding... Not even so much my response, which is not about understanding. It's about the whole theory of reading that I offer is one that combines feeling with thought and doesn't let them separate. And I, my theory is that that's how the imagination is made when, when thoughts and feelings come together. That's really when you can reimagine the past and forward imagine the future. And I think if you read Jane Austen and examine identify the feelings that you're having as you're reading her and then try to reflect on how what that tells you about who you are. For me, that is the best way of reading actually any novel. Yeah. Any more questions? Just, just following on from that, because we were discussing this, I read all of Jane Austen's right. books last I'm year. sure many people... By have. chance. Right. But I thought Northanger Abbey was screamingly funny, and I don't think I recognised that when I was a no. young woman at all. Right. Do you... Would you... In my book, I write... In my chapter about Northanger Abbey, I actually say to my horror when I started to reread deliberately, consciously, I was going to read... I made a decision. I was going to read the six novels... So I went to get them on my bookshelf and Northanger Abbey was missing. And I thought, you know what, I must have read it because I sort of remembered Catherine Morland as being this girl who'd gone to Bath and had all these experiences and this terrible visit to Northanger Abbey and the Gothic sort of um, echoes there. But I think when I, I must have dismissed it from my mind. So I went and I bought another copy and at the same time as I bought that copy I met in the bookshop a teacher who told me at the local school she was going to be teaching Northanger Abbey and we agreed to meet afterwards and talk about it. And that's really when I started to become interested in how novels, Jane Austen's novels are read at school. Because at that time, which was the early 2000s, the approach to Northanger Abbey was as a gothic novel. So it was really the same thing as Clueless does with introducing you to this wild teenage culture. That was said to introduce you to vampire... You know, all the things that go with gothic culture, which are really popular with teenagers now. When I reread it, I reread it so differently. I read it as a book about friendship, a book about coming of age, a book about discrimination between what is worthwhile and who is worthwhile and it has become just as dear to me as any of the other books. I don't know whether you feel that. Yeah. It's your now your favourite. Well she is a lovely girl. 
And in, uh, I mean, she has no pretensions to big brains, but she's smart. She's really smart. She gets it too. Thank you. Okay. Okay, if we don't have any more. Um, uh, the other day I was listening to uh, the wonderful Robin Williams on his science show, yes. and he was interviewing a 97-year-old Derek Denton who worked with Crick, believe it or not. Right. And he said playfully, as Robin Williams does, um, now, Derek, what are your future plans? You're 97 now, you're still writing papers, and also, uh, I think maybe, would you be planning on finishing writing at, say, 110? To which Derek Denton said, yes, I think that might be right. Now, I want to know, what are your future plans? Because you seem so on the ball and so wonderful, and you speak so beautifully. Thank that, you very um, much. I think we'd all like to know what you're going to do next. Well, my my, I have been deeply, deeply <laughs> disappointed because in the recent revision of the English curriculum, there was a suggestion that we do return to teaching young people how to construct a sentence and how to use grammar, and the English Teachers Association has written an opposition, a, a paper opposed. I am so disappointed. I write a lot about grammar. I, you know, I'm like, a, I'm sure a lot of people here, I love grammar. I find it fascinating. I find those syntactical connections between words really fascinating in the way that they can just turn a meaning like that. And I have to tell you very proudly, today I have a letter published in the London Review of Books because I'm making a discrimination between the use of will and shall in the first in the first person singular. And it's only about this big, but it's published there and I'm very pleased. What I am now I really am planning my, to write a paper and try to get it. There's been no interest in, in any of my approach to reading from the English Teachers Association. No in the in my thesis in anything. So I now want to try to get because I want to advocate this different what is the point in spending a whole year reading a novel if it doesn't make you understand yourself better, if it's all about deciding whether this critic's right or that critic's right, or whether we're looking at it through feminism or we're looking at it through colonialism. Isn't it all about what does it do for me? How does it help me become a richer, more complex, more exciting person to be with? So I'm going to try. My pleasure. sharing your love of Jane Austen with us today. Um, I, I think I might um, try and read Jane Austen again. But for you, maybe I'd better start with reading R Ruth Wilson to get more Oh, inspired. I think you should. Yeah. I have and there is an opportunity today to buy Ruth's book and Ruth will be signing copies just, um, at the back there. So Thanks. please join me thanking Ruth Wilson. Thank you. Thank we hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of Writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.